Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here today for a special simulcast of Zoom Into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, iHeartMedia, everywhere you can get your podcast. Thanks for our show sponsors, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. And uh, as speaking events come back in person, if you're a meeting planner or your platform speaker, find one another at SpeakerMatch.com. Thanks to our friends at Headline Books for getting us together with author Michael Beatrice. He's a researcher on COVID-19 and who would have thunk it? We're still talking about it now, all these years later. His brand new book is COVID-19, The Science Versus the Lockdowns. And uh, Michael Beatrice joins us on Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. What made you get interested in this whole thing to begin with? Uh, good morning, Rick. Uh, so like a lot of Americans, I was following this kind of peripherally early on, going back to January and February. You know, we had we had uh, canceled all of our flights uh, to and from China on January 31st of 2020. And so it was making a lot of headlines, hadn't really had an impact here at all. And I started following these two cruise ships that were quarantined. I thought it was interesting. Uh, both princess cruises, one off of Japan and one off of the coast of California. I had actually been on the I've been on one cruise and it was it was on the uh, Grand Princess that was quarantined off California. And if you remember when it was porting in, it was kind of covered on cable news, like it was the Bronco chase, right? I right, sure. In and, and then when everybody ported in uh, and disembarked, nobody really got sick. And I thought, wow, that's really odd given all the attention. About 10 days later, the Imperial College released a model that said uh, in a do nothing scenario, that COVID-19 would kill uh, 2.2 million Americans uh, by the summer of 2020. That prompted the UK and the US to lock down. California locked down first within hours, Illinois and New York followed and within a week, pretty much every state did lockdown. Schools were closed, et cetera. And I just thought that was a little bit odd given what happened on the cruise ships. So I took the data from the Imperial College, their assumptions, plugged it into the demographics of the cruise ships. We should have had 155 people die on the cruise ships and we had 10. And I thought, and then by the way, in the midst of closing schools, uh, highly age stratified, it was only the elderly that had died on those cruise ships. And so it just seemed like a disproportionate response. I kept following it recreationally. And whatever that first Monday was in April, I woke up and my son was home from college and we were in lockdown. And I said, I'm gonna write a book about this. This is just, we've, we've sort of lost it in terms of our response relative to the risk. So, Michael, you had written a series of books before, uh, and they were research-based and academic-based. We're not a medical researcher prior to this, but I remember talking to you about your first book, The, the COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, right. and the thing that blew me away when I read that book was this analysis of that cruise ship data. Um, and in that book, I think I was the, that was the first place I had actually seen that come to light, and it really was eye-opening in that the numbers were so diametrically opposed to what happened nationally, not uh, certainly not to minimize COVID-19. And, and we'll talk about that later. You're not a, a COVID-19 denier at all. But I, I wonder if now that we're two years, uh, moving into three years into this, why you think it is that the reaction was so disproportionate when that information was out there? 
Well, I think we followed the lead of, you know, Wuhan had gotten hit. We didn't really know how hard because we nobody had access to get into China. Um, Italy clearly got slammed, the central uh, northern province of uh, in Italy and uh, uh, the area around Milan. And so, but, but what it really happened was nursing homes were ravaged. Uh, and so it was very highly age stratified. The median age of deaths in Italy at that time early on was hovering around 80. Here it's, I think, 78 or so. And, uh, and so I think there was a little bit of fear. Listen, I've got a lot of forgiveness for decisions that were made in March of 2020. I do. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of forgiveness for us not reopening schools. I started off on this because of my business books that the 40 million people unemployed is what triggered my first book on this. But the torch I'm carrying now is, is our poor kids, right? We've had 55 million kids K through 12 lost a year of education. And even now it's fractured. Do you know that uh, a month ago we had 16 schools closed. Now we have 6,500. 6,500 kids are out of class again. Uh, for a virus that is no more lethal to them uh, than the flu. Michael Beatrice is our guest today. The new book is The Science Versus the Lockdowns from Headline Books. He's a uh, COVID researcher and analyst and one of the very first to analyze that cruise ship data when the, the cruise ships came back in. And as it turned out, there was a much lower instance of, of folks who uh, got COVID and passed from it. And yet, as you said, the, the schools locked down. Um, Michael, you know, I'm from a, a very rural state, West Virginia, where in many cases, when kids go to school there, that's the only good meal they get for the day. Uh, and, you know, it's a state that's been ravaged by uh, the opioid epidemic and, and uh, you know, as a huge instance of, of kids who are up for adoption and in foster care and have guardian ad litems. So in the research that you've done for this new book, just how damaging have the school lockdowns been? across the US? You know, we could spend two days talking about it. it. It's been, you know, when we look at, at mass scores seem to be on average down anywhere from 30 to 50%, uh, depending, on, depending on the study. Um, English down, not quite as much, but uh, remote learning isn't, it, it's, it's, it's not even, <clears throat> well, it's not remotely close to real learning that, we're, that our kids are used to not to mention the social aspects of it. And so, and what you mentioned in West uh, Virginia in terms of the um, meals and kids, think about uh, that's happening all over the place in urban areas. And so like, for example, uh, I'm from Michigan, Flint right now is their entire school districts are closed. Um, Flint's a, you know, not a real wealthy community. It's very minority based. And so you've got kids there that are in the same boat. They're fractured education and meals. And those implications are, are, uh, are long associated with the school closings for something that, um, that there just isn't a lot of risk. I mean, to give you some idea, I know you saw this, but uh, two weeks ago, I did some analysis on this. This is original work. First time this had been done. And so we took the um, 14 states that had mandatory masks uh, required in schools there are 14 states, uh, and there were about a dozen states that did not require it, uh, meaning they couldn't have mandates, so, so it was optional, which basically means nobody was, kids weren't wearing masks. Right. It, when you look at the hospitalization data, that's the number that matter. Cases don't matter at all. It's really how many people are getting sick. Uh, and so when you look at the uh, hospitalization data, in the areas where kids are required to wear masks, they had an incidence of 4.7 uh, pediatric hospitalizations per 100,000. 
for the other states where there were no mask mandates uh, allowed, that was that incidence was four, right? And so if these mandates work, it should be, uh, the, the difference should be very large, right? It should be two times, three times, 10 times. Uh, it shouldn't be within a margin of error. And so, and that's a great sampling, right? I mean, this is a, you're talking about 15 million kids in each pool. So it's a very, very large sampling, huge states, small states, um, different geographies. And what it shows is these mitigations just, they, they really were ineffective and they don't do anything. Let's talk about some of the big picture things in terms of schools. Where do you fall based on the science and on the research that you've done on vaccines for kids ages five through 12 and then the teenagers? Yeah, when Pfizer first released their trial data, they said that there was a 98% or something like that effectiveness uh, with their uh, mRNA vaccine. Uh, I kind of laughed because I thought that's about, you know, that's probably lower than the efficacy of doing nothing for kids. Um, this virus has killed maybe, if you could find me 50 healthy people under 20, healthy with no underlying conditions and not overweight that have died of COVID, I'll get somebody a capital dinner, capital grill uh, dinner gift card. It, it just hasn't really happened. And so the idea of vaccine young kids when there is a, um, uh, an incidence of uh, side effects from the vaccines. I'm, I'm not a vaccine um, conspirist. Yeah, I'm not against that. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I took the J&J &J vaccine uh, in May of uh, 20, uh, 2021. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I'd be an outlier. If something happened to me based on my age and physical profile, I would be an outlier for something to happen, but that could happen. The idea of, of vaccine uh, kids and mandating them when the vaccines aren't stopping the spread of COVID, uh, and even now they're, they're proving to be very ineffective against this variant, uh, the mRNA vaccines, it's, you, you could make an argument that we should almost abandon them. I mean, the idea of doing four boosters that they're doing in Israel and they're having skyrocketing cases. Israel is always ahead of the United States uh, in terms of these curves based on, you know, they just move a little faster. And so they're, a little, they're just more advanced. Uh, <clears throat> these things, they, th there's not really good logical sense. And where I think the CDC has failed on this is that instead of saying, hey, we need to, you need to get everybody uh, vaxxed, right? Everybody five and older should be vaxxed. Everybody should get boosted, et cetera. You lose credibility in that when you're encouraging uh, people that aren't really at risk at all uh, of getting uh uh, the vaccine, given the side effects and given that they don't stop the spread. And so instead of doing that, uh, what's happened is you've got some people that are not taking uh, the vaccines, any of them on some sort of principal protest. What happens with that is that you've got people that might be under 50. That's about the break-even point of taking the vaccines where you probably have more upside than downside. But if you're younger than that and overweight or you've got severe diabetes, et cetera, you really should take it. There, there probably is some protective benefit. Um, but by doing these one-size-fits-alls, they've sort of lost credibility. They haven't highlighted the people that are really at risk. Obesity is extremely highly correlated to a serious COVID illness. Most people, even in my circle, and look what I've been doing for two years, they really don't know this. Uh, and that's the sort of the public health information that needs to get out there. Our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom into Books is Michael Beatrice. His book is The Science Versus the Lockdowns. He's a researcher and analyst. I know this is a very controversial topic. If you have questions, be sure to get them into us. 
uh, and we're presenting Michael uh, with no bias, uh, and he's presenting the science uh, as he sees it and and analyzes it. One thing that, that you can tell us, I think, for sure, based on your research, is that prior to uh, the COVID pandemic, there were pandemic playlo- uh, playbooks that, that governments all over the world had. But it seems that the the way governments reacted when this happened, fast and furious, was quite a bit different than the playbooks they had in place. Clearly, you've got to switch things up based on present circumstances. But but how do you think that, that government, uh, especially here in America, their actions differed from the playbook they already had in place? Good question. Um, they sort of went into the Super Bowl and threw out their playbook and, and, and started calling audibles. That's really what happened. So if you look at the CDC and WHO playbooks uh, for pandemic influenza, they were published in 2017 and 2019, the two most recent uh, updates. They called for basically two things um, it, for a category two pandemic, and that's what COVID-19 is. So the first one is self-isolation if you're sick. That's a good one. I, I think I would subscribe to that even when we're all through this, uh, if you have the flu or something. And the second was possibly closing schools for three to four weeks at the peak of community spread, okay? Uh, they didn't say uh, that everybody should be wearing face masks. They said it could be optional, uh, particularly if you're sick. But the one thing that the WHO would call down is that they, they called out something called mechanistic plausibility, which means- What is that? It means it feels like face masks should work. It's a respiratory transmitted virus. It feels like it should work, but there's no data to support it. Now we've got so much data, but do you know there's only been two uh, randomized control trial studies done in the world since this started on face masks? One was in Denmark and one was in Bangladesh. Not one other than Denmark, first world country, uh, did, did any studies on this to really, I mean, what a great sandbox to learn from this. Um, Nobody's done anything on this. Those two trial studies showed basically a negligible difference. When I say negligible, I don't mean like 70% different. I mean like single digit percentages, like margin of error percentages. Um, and, and, And so it's almost like, let's say somebody said, hey, I think flying is unsafe. It seems like it should be unsafe. You're, you, you've got this, you know, super heavy airplane, you know, flying around, the, you know, at thirty thousand feet. It feels like it could be unsafe. However, look at around us. We we don't even have a plane crash per several million flights. Um, and what I mean by that is, if you look at at the United States, you can't find or identify one community that's had mask mandates that resulted in continued suppression of the virus, cases, hospitalizations, or deaths. It just doesn't exist. Um, If it all worked, we would have pockets of of, uh, uh, areas where this worked and where where we could lean on something that says, hey, there's data here. This is really solid stuff. We can prove that this works. It, It just doesn't exist because they don't. Well, to take the other side of that argument though, couldn't you say, look, if there's a chance that by me putting on a face mask, I'm going to protect somebody who has a compromised immune system. Is it really that big a deal to do that? Um, look, I've worn masks when we had uh, mask mandates in Texas. I live in Dallas, uh, and I, I I didn't do it under protest, right? I'm you know I, I'm just not that kind of guy. Um, but uh, but the bigger message is the people that are at risk should probably isolate. Knowing the masks don't work 
uh, here's an example, right? So I've got a 90 year old mom in Detroit. I have kept her under sort of wraps for uh, almost two years now, encouraging her to stay home, keep a low profile. Um, at 90, she's cool with that. Um, yeah. I got a kid in college. I told that my son in college to live his life as fully as he can. You know, he got COVID uh, last year, uh, almost a year ago. And he sent me a text and said, my roommate got COVID. Um, what should I do? And then I texted him back and said, nothing. You're probably, you guys are probably all going to get it within a couple of days, unless you're naturally immune. Sure enough, within two days, they all got it, tested positive. Uh, again, I was so alarmed that all we did was text a couple of times about it. Uh, but I told him to isolate and stay away from everybody and do remote classes, et cetera, for a week or so. Um, however- And he came through it okay, right? Your son. Yeah, he came through it fine. Uh, uh, yeah, the, his biggest symptom was a little bit of fatigue and a scratchy throat for a day or two. So really, like if he didn't know COVID existed, he wouldn't know he, that he had it. However, um, when he started law school, uh, his law school was requiring uh, people unvaxxed, even though he actually recovered. He, they were requ requiring him to um, be tested twice a week, which seemed like a real big hassle to him. So he's begging me, can I please get vaxxed? Can I please get it? So I did some research based on his physical profile, 21, skinny, super fit. Um, the J&J &J seemed like the, the um, uh, vaccine option with the, the le uh, least downside. Uh, but I'll tell you what, when he got vaxxed, um, I was up till 1.30 in the morning with him. Uh, he was asleep, but I was watching him to make sure he was breathing okay and his you know, heart seemed normal and all that. Uh, and he woke up at 4 a.m. and said it was the sickest he'd been in, in um, really since he could remember. Uh, and so he completely laid up for 24 hours and then he recovered from that. And, uh, and I still pay close attention. My message in all this story is that uh, if you understand the data, you would know, should I be worried about my kid getting COVID when he's healthy? No, not really. Not at that age. Should I be worried about him getting vaxxed given his physical profile? Yeah, I know the data. And sure enough, the vaccines hit him a lot harder than COVID. So based on what you've learned in your research, and, and it's interesting, you, you hear all the time, follow the science, but the science is, is very murky to us laymen. What, what COVID mitigations have been the most effective and which the least? You obviously in your research uh, shows masks are not, uh, although they've been scarcely researched, are not very effective. What does work? What mitigations are the most effective? So one of the things that that is real is self-isolation, right? Social distancing, that's real. You don't wanna get COVID, uh, don't go around people. That That's real, that's what I had my mom do. Uh, so that one's real. Uh, protecting nursing homes and those that are let's say vulnerable and a little bit helpless. They can't really control their destiny. We should have done more consistent testing in the nursing homes um, and healthcare settings because after home, the number one uh, source spread of COVID has been in healthcare settings. That's not a dig, that's just the data. Uh, and so those are things that, that are effective. Uh, when you look at the things that don't, closing schools, paramount, right? I mean, we're the only country that is masked uh, to the degree down uh, that we have. We've closed schools more than other, uh, other countries have. And some states are off the rails on this stuff. So closing schools, closing restaurants, really there was no evidence that closing restaurants or retailers um, did anything. There's really no evidence that, that uh, wearing masks on airplanes does anything when you look at comparative data around the world. 
So the things that work, uh, social distancing and isolation and protecting those that are vulnerable, that's real. And I practice it, so I'm not, I'm not speaking ac academically. But the other things that we've done that are, that are so crazy, that the, um, all of the um, capacity restrictions, closing schools, uh, things I mentioned, restaurants, th those things just, they didn't do anything. And so are you a proponent then of, of social distancing to the point you can do it in schools and keeping schools open? No, because the kids aren't at risk. And so, uh, so no, I, I, you know, it, this isn't like the movie Outbreak, right? The Mataba, I think that's what they called it, right? The, uh, right, the uh, um, right. This isn't like that where all age groups, it's not even like the Spanish flu, by the way, where all age groups might have, uh, you know, similar risks. Um, kids just aren't, aren't at risk like that. So no, I, I would do normal protocols and, and I practice that, right? I practice it with my own child. So no, uh, there should be completely normal protocols, even in communities or, or excuse me, in countries. Uh, well, forget countries right now, look at the United States. When you look at the um, rate of incidence where we have normal protocols, like look at the Dakotas, look at Arizona, look at Texas, Florida, uh, even honestly, look at Michigan, right? Uh, nothing's happening there that's any worse than what's happening in California and Oregon and Washington and Illinois, et cetera. Um, if these things worked, you would see a difference in the results and there just isn't any. Michael Beatrice is a COVID researcher and analyst. His new book is The Science Versus the Lockdowns. And he takes a, a somewhat contrarian view uh, from what you might see uh, out there from uh, folks like the CDC. And I, I wanna ask you about the CDC. Um, they seem to, within the last, I don't know, couple of months, certainly, um, have been taking it on the chin a lot in terms of, of public confidence, because they have to switch up their messaging uh, quite a bit. And, and of course, the CDC will say, well, look, you, you do have to switch it up because, you know, COVID is morphing. And as we learn more, we change up our strategies. But I wonder what you think about sort of this public confidence level weakening in the CDC and, and how you feel about that based on the research you've done. Right. So I'll put you on the spot for just a second. So you're a guy who, who um, an average citizen, uh, you're a little closer to this maybe than average because you know me but, uh, and my work. But, uh, but what would you say are the CDC recommendations just as an average citizen right now uh, for COVID protocols? Wow, that's a great question. It changes a lot. They want, uh, they want people to wear masks and they want you to social distance and wash your hands a lot. How's that? Okay. So their number, I'd say the number one recommendation that's come out of the CDC right now is, or has been this calendar year, last calendar year, 2021, is get vaccinated, then get boosted. Oh, of course, sure. Right. But, well, I mean, but that's the real strategy. The strategy has been a vaccination strategy. Then it was abandoned masks. Um, Dr. Walensky said in the spring of 2021, uh, get vaxxed, ditch your masks. Uh, then when Delta hit, uh, it was like, oh no, we know that Delta is permeating the vaccines for spread. So put your masks back on. Uh, and so what you've got with the CDC is even going back to August, uh, September of 2020, you've got Director Redfield at a Senate hearing saying, holding up a mask saying, these masks are more effective than a vaccine uh, and the vaccines won't be out for months. Well, the vaccines were out six weeks later. So I'm not sure how in touch Dr. Redfield was, but that's something he should have known, right? If you're that right. close, you were in trials. Um, and so 
the, when you look at the CDC's messaging and the and the administration strategy, it's it's a vaccination strategy. There's not a a um, uh, tight communication around. Hey, listen, you want to get your five to eleven year old or five to twenty year old vaxxed? That is your option. But these are the health conditions that probably would would drive you to do that. However, if you are overweight, you should really get vaccinated. There is protective benefit to there. Nobody knows that, right? I mean, so uh, they really had a um, almost robotic response to this and, uh, and it hasn't really followed the science, right? The science doesn't show that masks do anything. I'm not, again, anti-mask. If they worked, I would have written a book on why we should wear masks. I would. I mean, I'm, I'm not on you know some cause here, uh, but they just didn't work, and uh, and so they keep putting out studies that are are. Uh, I wrote an article that that uh, was widely circulated last year called "The CDC Jumps the Shark," and so it was based on mask studies in Kansas and Arizona, and a restaurant study out of uh, California, uh, Los Angeles, and that data was. Uh, was so flimsy to draw conclusions from. And again, why, why do that? You, you don't, it's not something the CDC needs to, they shouldn't be on a cause. The, the cause should be the science. The cause shouldn't be, we need to double down so we don't admit political leaders screwed up. So a great example of this is, um, do you know who Jared Polis is? He's the governor in Colorado. Okay. So Jared Polis, in, in the book, in the book that we're discussing, The Science Versus the Lockdowns, there's a chapter that I did called uh, The Burden of Proof. And in that chapter, I uh, did a lot of comparisons on states that were tightly restricted and loosely restricted and, and schools open and all these things and, and what was their COVID outcomes. And the COVID outcomes were, uh, they, you couldn't identify based on restrictions who had more deaths or not. So at the very end of that, I graded all the governors, all 50 governors, and I'd originally graded uh, Jared Polis a D, uh, but my grading was largely based on schools, school openings and kids having the opportunity to learn face-to-face. -face. However, I would give Polis a higher grade now because in November, uh, when cases started to rise a little bit in Colorado, uh, a journalist in an interview said, are you going to institute a mask mandate? And Polis said, well, I'm looking at the data in New Mexico, our neighboring state, and they have a mask mandate and they have for months and their case curve is exactly like ours. So why should I do that? People can get vaccinated if they want that protection. Uh, at this point, it's a personal choice and no, I'm not gonna mandate anything. And I thought, wow, so here's a guy who didn't double down like you're seeing in, in so many other states like Washington and, and uh, California and Illinois and New York, et cetera. Here's a guy who, let's just say he, he um, had a certain policy and isn't doubling down on it and, and he's evolving. I think that's respectful. Uh, we, we just aren't seeing that with the CDC. They're just continuing to double down on previous policies and the, the science just isn't backing up. So you're at your core, you're a researcher. And by the way, if you're just scrolling by on your Facebook feed or watching on YouTube, Michael Beatrice is a COVID researcher. He's written two books on COVID. The new one from Headline Books is called The Science Versus the Lockdowns. So as you said, you're a researcher and, and where the numbers lead you is where the numbers lead you, right? Um, and you don't weigh into the politics of this a whole lot, but I'm going to ask you one political question um, from your vantage point based on the research that you've done. 
and that is the administration's handling of the pandemic. Uh, first, the Trump administration, and then now the Biden administration. So based on the numbers and the research and the analysis you've done, which of those two administrations seem to, to follow the research better? And who's doing a better job? Who would you give a better grade? Well, I'd say that the Trump administration was largely led by uh, policy. First off, let's let's establish one thing. The federal government doesn't set policy on this. We live in a republic. The governors have the, the authority to uh, set policy. So the, the, That's a great point. Very the, good. the federal government uh, doesn't actually, you know, their role in this is to provide resources on demand for the states and set, let's say, international policies like travel and things like that. But beyond that, this is not a federal uh, government thing uh, in terms of policies. So that said, there's no doubt that President Trump felt strongly that kids should be in school. I, I do think that played out to be an accurate uh, response. Uh, I think that Trump clearly said, and, and if you read Scott Atlas's book, who was an inside man uh, at the time, and I know a lot of people, I've worked with people on this topic who were advising Atlas, actually. And, uh, and so Atlas was facing a strong headwind with the um, with Burks and Fauci and, uh, and Dr. Redfield. Uh, but so having said that, I think that President Trump, it was very clear, felt like we shouldn't have locked down as severe as we did. That, that's just obvious, but that was out of his control. The Biden administration, uh, and one other quick comment on that is, um, you'll hear a lot of comments that, well, more people died in 2021 under Biden than they did under Trump in 2020. Um, a lot of the 2021 deaths uh, happened in January. That was the biggest month we've ever had. Right. A lot of those were carryover deaths. So I don't think it's fair to nitpick and say, uh, well, Biden's done a worse job than Trump, just on, on in terms of people dying. But, what this is showing us is that we can't control this type of thing. Uh, that's, to me, the big takeaway. But uh, the Biden the Biden administration's policy, uh, it's really been get vaxxed and get boosted and wear masks. That That's the only policy. They didn't really do anything. They inherited vaccines, and they 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 put all their chips in the middle on the vaccines. And, and to some degree, the vaccines have, been, have probably helped. Um, we're seeing very low efficacy for the vaccines now. Uh, the Biden administration certainly encouraged, uh, along with the FTA, on wearing masks. Um, those things, I think we you know, kind of discussed that. They, it just isn't really effective. Um, we haven't done a good job of managing therapeutics, so that's been probably a miss. Uh, and, and now our latest thing is, well, we're going to spend over a billion dollars and send masks and test everybody. Well, these are largely like one-time use types of things. You can only wear a mask, um, an N95 or a K95, you can only wear them so much. So let's say you wear, you know, so it's kind of a one and out type of strategy. You can do your test, but then once you take it, you're done. I, I don't understand things like that. Again, they should be contextualizing all this and it should be more of a live with it strategy. And if you're at risk strategy, let's, let's do these, you know, three things to help you along. So I've got to ask you again, as the devil's advocate here, if the vaccines, you know, for the most part, are either not going to do anything or they're going to help, there's very little downside to them. Eh, why not? Why not get everybody vaxxed up? Well, you it's but what you just said was there's no downside. So the vaccines have caused more side effects than every other vaccine combined, probably in the last 30 years. That's real data. Uh, 
And if you talk into specifically to doctors, you will find out that there are real side effects, particularly in certain physical body types. That's real. I, again, I took it and I allowed my kid to take it, but I, I stuck with the J and J based on the science. Uh, but, uh, so again, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but to suggest that there's no downside is not correct. There is a little bit of risk to it. Uh, it's small, uh, but so is the Fair risk. enough. So it's small. So is it worth it uh, overall to, to try to vax up as many people as you can? Because the, you know, the, the positive of that outweighs the small negative. Well, it depends on the age and the physical body type. If, to me, if you know, my number is based on the, what I've looked at and the people I've talked to that I trust. If you're over 50, I think it, it could make a lot of sense to do that. Uh, and I, pr I practice that. Um, if you're uh, under 50 and you've got a couple different underlying conditions, three or four that we know about, yeah, you should probably take it. But if you're under 30, under 40 and skinny and fit, I don't know, your downside could actually be higher. It's why the thing with like Novak Djokovic, right? The tennis player, the number one tennis player who got, uh, had all the drama with the Australian Open. Djokovic right. recovered from COVID. Uh, he's a perfect physical specimen and nobody, you know, is in better, any better shape. The idea that he needed to be vac vaccinated uh, for health reasons is absurd. And, and yet this is where we are. You, um, you're a pretty fit guy. And I know that, that you like to hike and, and you've told me about your mountaintop adventures and, and all that. You shared earlier in the conversation, you personally were vaxxed. You also uh, have had COVID yourself. Tell me about that event and what happened. And if it changed your outlook on the whole thing. Uh, well, uh, so I went to a wedding over the holidays uh, a little less than a month ago. And, uh, and the next day uh, I started to feel fluish. And then I got a text from the uh, bride's father and said, hey, I started feeling sick and I got tested. He works at a hospital and I got COVID and my wife's sick. And as it turned out, a whole bunch of us got COVID. Uh, it was a genuine super spreader event. And, uh, and so I felt fluish and you know recovered from it within a couple of days, wasn't really a big deal. Uh, did the J and J vaccine help me through that? I, I, you know, I'll never know the answer to that, but I'd like uh, to think so. I'm sure. Um, the, all my friends got COVID prior to the vaccines being available, right? I, every one of my friends, but one already got COVID and, uh, and, uh, they're all fit, uh, and, and thin, and they're all in their fifties and none of them got sick. They felt symptomatic. So they felt something, but they weren't really sick. The likelihood that I would have gotten sick is low, right? I, I would be an outlier based on my profile, but look, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'd rather, uh, the risk of the vaccine seemed better to me than being an outlier, which I knew could, could happen because I've studied the science. Right. Uh, so so uh, anyway, I, that was my bout with COVID. So I got it after I got vaccinated and it, I was at a genuine super spreader event. <laughs> So did it change your outlook on things? Did it change the way you feel about your research at all? Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm close enough to it to know who is likely to be, uh, have a serious COVID illness over this or die from it. That didn't change from that. It, it probably affirmed it, right? Because I got it and so many people I know got it that night. And so many of my friends socially have already had it and their outcomes were consistent with the data. If you're healthy going into this, uh, you would be an outlier if you, if you had a, a serious COVID condition or died from it. 
And, and so I think going back to the CDC thing from a public service, right? The idea of eating healthy uh, and, uh, and being the proper weight, that's not a misnomer, that's real. If any, I've learned anything through this as a non-medical guy, uh, being healthy as a baseline uh, before getting sick is hugely important to having a good outcome. That makes sense. Hey, did you do any research in the new book? And I've got to read it. I'm excited. The book is The Science Versus the Lockdowns. And they give sort of a balanced view on, on COVID-19 based on the research. Did you do anything in there about the impact of the lockdown on school kids or kids in general? Well, so again, we talked about like the grades of school, uh, school kids has dropped dramatically, uh, particularly right. in communities, challenged communities where they wouldn't have the resources that you know, let's say middle class and up. Uh, up and those were inner city schools and rural schools, or did was it broken down that way? Uh, it wasn't broken down that way. Uh, the likelihood, I mean, look, in rural communities, they largely have not been as fearful as um, urban communities. That's just across the board. So right. rural kids were, were probably less impacted because their schools would have been more likely to default to being face-to-face -face learning and kind of work it, working it through. Um, that's just, that's what the data showed. But uh, one thing that was really interesting, in one of the chapters uh, toward the end uh, where I talked about collateral damage of the lockdowns, the create, and, and a survey, our poll just came out within the last week or two to, to, that is still consistent. The most fearful group around COVID are young people. So Burke, the people that are at the least amount of risk of COVID are the people most afraid of COVID. Hmm. And the people that are most vulnerable are the people less afraid. Now, some of that is life experience. When you're 60 or 70, you start to roll with the punches more than you do when you're 20. But when you're 20 or 10 or 30, you're more likely to be wired into uh, social media news and social media has... Uh, They've censored really stuff like we're talking about, you know, content like we're talking about has been uh, uh, censored on, on YouTube and on Facebook and, uh, and on Twitter. And so where the, where the young people get their information, they're getting select information. These are the people that are least vulnerable, least at risk, and they're the most afraid and uptight right now. It's crazy. Michael Beatrice's book is The Science Versus the Lockdowns. I keep glancing over to my side because I've got a copy of it on my desk and it's just begging to be read to to really dig into the science and when people say follow the science that's really kind of a hard thing to do though isn't it the very first line of the book the very first is called follow the science that's what we were told uh you know all the science before there was like this thing i termed science bc before COVID and science ac after COVID. right and, uh, and so the science BC never suggested a lot of the things that we're doing now. And I think where we've come with some countries and some communities, countries like Australia, as an example, uh, and some states like California or New York, is what happened since COVID is the default became social distancing and wearing masks and all these mitigations. The default should be normal life. And so the burden should be on proving that these things work in order to do them, not do them and the burden is on um, 
you know, sort of the, the inverse where the burden is on proving that by not doing anything, it works, which by the way, we proved that the data is overwhelming. Uh, if you look at the least restricted states like California, or excuse me, like Florida and Oklahoma and the Dakotas, um, and we'll even cross a section some of those like you know you take Arizona, Arizona to get hit hard but not harder than lock super hard lockdown states so if if those things work they should be doing way worse right if if it should and it shouldn't be close uh and what we're finding is that the highest obesity rate states are the most impacted by covid here's one for you that i just learned a couple of weeks ago i knew i knew it intuitively but i hadn't looked at the data the five least impacted states uh, in terms of COVID deaths are also the five lowest obesity rate states. How about that? Crazy. No, it makes sense if you think it through though. Um, I've asked you a lot about research and as we uh, get close to the end of our conversation, I'm gonna ask you one non-research question um, and it's on the personal tip a little bit. So uh, I live here in the Washington DC Metro as you know, and, and so does the guy who's become sort of the face of this whole thing, Dr. Anthony Fauci. I've never met Dr. Fauci. Uh, he's you know worked in public health for a gazillion years now. Uh-huh. And he, especially in the last, oh, I don't know, nine months or so, has become the target of an awful lot of, of hatred and vitriol from some folks in politics to the point where the guy has you know 24-7 security around him and his family. And I wonder what your thoughts are on how something like a global worldwide pandemic became so politicized and, and how you feel about, you know, Dr. Fauci winding up, you know, virtually in the crosshairs of a whole bunch of angry, crazy people. Well, uh, so a couple of big questions in there, but what I'd say about Dr. Fauci, I don't hold it nearly the contempt that let's say my, my uh, philosophical peers do, meaning people that are aligned with me and do a lot of work. Fauci is a policy influencer. He doesn't run the CDC. He doesn't actually set any guidelines. He really, he goes on TV and talks a lot. I don't mean that with any tone. I just mean he's, he's not a policymaker and he doesn't right. run He's the, the face of it. As we said, he's the face he's of it. He's kind of just a guy. So I don't even understand why the Senate grills him so hard. I understand the topics, but um, the focus of this should really be the CDC because what, what businesses and states lean on is, well, we're following CDC guidelines. So Dr. Redfield and Dr. Walensky are more of the people that should be, um, I think, kind of grilled on this and, and held accountable to, to justify the policies that they've recommended. But ultimately, it's on the governors. So anyway, back to your point, uh, I don't think that Fauci uh, you know, should be someone, I don't think people should be going after Fauci. I think that conservative media or otherwise, uh, including people should, should probably lighten up on him. The focus should really be on the CDC and the governors that are setting these policies. Um, as for the political alignment, boy, it just came out of the gate, right? I, I mean, I think that it started with um, a little bit of genuine fear, but this was an opportunity for the media to, to uh, uh, invalidate our Trump in an election year. And, and to support that, one of the things I uncovered is that 85% of all the media coverage on COVID uh, in 2020 was negative. Um, whereas even when things were looking good and we had good news, it was still negative. 
In contrast, in Europe, which is really our, in the EU, our kind of peer part of the world, it right. was only 55%. So our coverage was much harsher and much more negative. Uh, I think there's some people that really believe it. I think there's some people that were election motivated, but I don't think it was hugely election motivated. Uh, and now I think it's a, um, I think it's just simply double down on it. I think that people will not, uh, whether it's in the media or politicians, some of them won't do what Jared Polis did, which is evolve. I think they won't let it go because they don't want to admit they were wrong. And the longer it goes on, the harder it is to admit that, that you're wrong on anything. Hey, your first book was written in a very sort of uh, user-friendly way, written for a general audience. Is the new book something that a Joe average guy like me, a good old West Virginia boy can pick up and, and make it through? Or is it going to be a slog? Is it all you know very medical and terminology driven? Well, certainly there's a lot of data because I want to, I want to share the data and, and studies, but I'm not a data doctor. Data is fine, but am yeah. I going to have big words I can't understand here? No, uh, if you can tell from our conversation, I, I'm, you know, I'm not an, uh, I'm not an elitist here Good. and I'm not a doctor. I wrote it in a way, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from people around really around the world on my first book is it's written simply and logically. Uh, so you can, you can make your own determination. You wouldn't know who I voted for based on reading either one of the books. Uh, but I'm laying out a logical argument and several times throughout both books, I would say things like, this is you know, kind of what the data is. I wouldn't say kind of, this is the data. You can make a decision yourself on how this should be interpreted uh, or if these policies are right. I don't need to hammer it down. I wanna, you know, in the world of cable news and the world of Twitter, there's a lot of people that are highly informed, but those two groups are only 15% combined of the country. Right. Uh, probably the same percentage. Most people really don't know what's going on. Uh, yep. In terms of the, the science and the data, and making an informed argument. They can feel it, right? You can feel it. Like in my county, uh, which is about the population of either one of the Dakotas, we've had very few COVID deaths. So it's one of those things where if we didn't know COVID was a thing, would we know it here? I don't know, probably not. We would in Los Angeles in certain communities. We would, you know, I'm not stupid. We, there, were, there were communities that got hammered uh, New York early on. For example. New York is the sure. best example. So for a four to six week period, most communities did get it. But I think a lot of Americans are like, you know, this has been almost two years. And like, yeah, we, we had a few hiccups. And yeah, we had some incidents of deaths. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. I lost a relative in a care facility to COVID in April of 2020 in Detroit. So I get it. I, and I've been protective of my mom. Uh, but is it, a, is it a risk that justifies all this? I think most people would be like, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I really get it. Uh, if, if it wasn't being you know, hammered down to us through cable news and social media. Well, you can read the book and make your own determinations. This is not a, a preachy data-driven book. This is one where you can open up and, and decide for yourself. The book again, and I've got a copy on my desk is The Science Versus the Lockdowns. Michael Beatrice is the author, Headline Books, is the publisher. Hey, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I appreciate the platform. I, thanks, Bert. You're very welcome. And if you're watching online and you'd like to pick up a copy of the book, it's available uh, at amazon.com, headlinebooks.com, wherever great books are sold. Thank you to Headline Books. And thank you for watching and listening to our Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by speakermatch.com. For author Michael Beatrice, I'm Bert Allen. Thanks for watching and listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. Thanks.